question is, how does a doctor and somebody so well-educated get addicted to fentanyl? This is how it happens. I'm already addicted to Percocet. I'm going through withdrawal, and I wanted to simply feel better. In Plain Sight is a Health Canada audio series that explores the personal stories of people affected by the opioid crisis. Every day, approximately 11 people die from opioid overdoses in Canada. We see this on the news. We know that it's happening. We know that it's real, yet we tell ourselves that it couldn't happen to the people we know, the people we work with, the people we love, that it couldn't happen to us. The reality is the opioid crisis is happening right before our eyes, in plain sight, and it can affect anyone. There are thousands of stories waiting to be heard. This is where Daryl's story begins. My name is Daryl Gebbian from Toronto, born here, raised, did uh, 17 years of education, and I eventually landed a job back in my home province, Ontario, in the emergency room, and that's when things are going well getting my new career started. I had a very uh, trying residency, but it was excellent. Very good training. Then came a day when I woke up. I've always had back pain, but this was substantially worse. I had had it since I was 18, off and on. I always knew something was wrong with my back, but to this point, it, it was completely, like to that one day, things changed. So my mother had saw what I, what I was going through with the pain, and she gave me uh, one of her Dilaudid's she had back pain, and this, uh, this is definitely a hereditary component. So that was my first introduction to an opioid, and uh, I liked it immediately. I mean, it helped the pain, but I also liked the, the mood it gave me. Everything kind of felt good. So immediately I was drawn to it because this one pill took away the pain, and psychologically as well, I felt good. And my mom recognized right away that something was up because uh, I think I had asked for another one a few hours later. I remember her laughing kind of. And nervous laughter. Oh, I can see what's going on here. No, 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 you're not going to get any more of those. That was the beginning for me, that uh, if Advil wouldn't cut it, that an opioid would. The pain got a little bit better. It would come and go. They'd go many months without any problems. But then progressively, that got worse. And uh, I started relying more and more on Percocet. So I had prescriptions at this point from my family doctor. And I was taking Percocet periodically. The first prescription lasted a very long time. Remember, I had that pill bottle in my medicine cabinet for about a year. But I found that the worrisome thing is there was nothing really serious going on in my life. But life was going well. But I do remember at one point, like this part of me that I guess is just somewhat risk-taking and trying new uh, activities or uh, pop a pill when his friends are over playing PlayStation golf um, because we're having a few beers. I'm like, ah, I wouldn't mind trying to see uh, how the Percocet feels. Like, I just want to have a couple of beers. So that was a decision that was just a horrible one in the end because I opened up Pandora's box, but, but that's in my nature. Why did I do that? But I did, and I didn't realize the consequences would lead to a horrible spiral that almost led to my death from a fentanyl addiction years later. So that was uh, the beginning of my downfall. It wasn't like I was doing it every weekend, but just here and there, I'd, I'd, I would be going out with friends, and I'd, I'd pop a pill. So, so I wasn't taking it so much for back pain anymore. It was there. I would use it for the back pain, but sometimes I'd take it just socially. Does this mean I'm a bad person? Does this mean I have low morals? This is how it starts for a lot of people. I'm not alone. But I do carry a lot of shame uh, and embarrassment over that. But it's, it's something I've learned to recognize and control now. You know, I've learned the hard way to be careful with my decision-making. But going back anyway to that time, it was a slow and steady spiral that started. 
and it's just progressively became a little more frequent and a little more than one pill, a little more often than I'd be drinking. Just to add fuel to this fire, things had changed in my life as well. I, I met a girl. She ended up moving from New Brunswick to Toronto, and this happened kind of quickly. She had a daughter, and my life changed very rapidly uh, because things started not going so well. And uh, then we had another child. We had our my my first child, their second child, and so bought the house and um, had changed now from single life, living in a condo, to buying a home, working my job in the emergency department, and the marriage was precipitous. The pregnancy was precipitous. This acceleration, I think, also undermined what was going on in my life because the marriage wasn't going well. There was also lack of communication to my wife and myself, which is we're both to blame. Also, there was a lot of discord between her and my mother, and it was a very, very difficult situation. I eventually cut off my parents. Um, my wife and my mother got into some major, major email arguments, and I had to make a decision at one point of what I what I was going to do here. So I chose my wife. And that also led to more problems because now I'm cut off from my support network. We're a very tight family. And so the relationship's getting worse. My back pain is getting worse. Uh, isolation from my friends and family is starting. I'm internalizing my feelings. I'm not expressing myself to, to my wife or anybody else. And maybe it comes from my profession, but you know, as a physician, you don't share information about yourself to remain professional. And I took it out on myself with the drugs. I found that they helped take it away. It helps treat my anxiety and the back pain. So the back pain is getting worse. It's progressively affecting me, not just um, the pain-wise, but neurologically. It affect my, uh, it was affecting my leg. I had weakness in my leg. It affected my bladder. I had problems uh, with urination. And then my wife and I decided to move from Toronto because she's unhappy in Toronto. I'm mobile with my job. I wanted to put some distance between my family and I, to be honest. Not a bad decision, but we moved up to Barry, And this uh, was the icing on the cake here because then within two years, my addiction just completely uh, spiraled out of control. Cut off from his family, separated from his friends, Daryl found himself both physically and emotionally isolated. Increasingly, he found no pleasure in the activities he once loved except one, which grew to fill the emptiness inside of him, exacerbated by what he felt was a toxic work environment. It just extinguished any sort of life within me. Everything going on here, the, the work, be stressed, I'd come home from work, I'd be stressed at home with a constantly revolving argument with my wife. And now looking back, I mean, it's obvious there were some serious issues. I forgot about this until later on, but I, I remember I would come home from a night shift or any shift and I'd sleep in the driveway in my car. And that's an obvious sign that something is definitely very wrong. I just, I didn't want to go into the house and face an argument or the stresses of my relationship with my wife. One thing I just need to describe here, just rewind a little bit, is Percocet addiction grew and grew and grew. And it's, I just need to let you know that how insidious the addiction is. Anybody who's been prescribed Percocet, if they're using it regularly over, over a week, and if they suddenly stop it, they will feel the effect of withdrawal. It is so strong and potent, and it's insidious on how the addiction grows on you. So that person stops. The next day, they're going through withdrawal. They don't even know it because they've never felt it before, but they feel very irritable, discontented, anxious, nervous, sweaty, chills, aches, pains. And they don't know what, you know, I, I was going through that one day. I, didn't, I had no idea what it was. 
So it wasn't after a week for me. This, we're talking after several months, so a couple of years now, actually. And there was a day uh, I wanted to stop. And the next day, within 24 hours, I was in a horrible shape with this withdrawal. And I didn't know what it was at first. I didn't recognize that. Just People compare it to a flu, but it, it's so much worse than a flu. Because flus don't affect your psychology. Um, maybe you feel down, but I mean, going through withdrawal is a physical stuff like a flu, but what's much worse is the psychological, what's going on in your head. You feel like you're going to die. You feel like the world is going to collapse around you. And that is incredibly powerful because no one wants to feel sick. And how do you avoid from feeling sick? You take more. And I don't think I realized at the time, but I, I took another Percocet later on and, and lo and behold, uh-huh, I feel, felt back to normal. But that was a pivotal moment in my addiction because now I'm totally hooked on it, dependent. I will feel sick and psychologically in a very rough shape uh, if I don't take it. And so now I'm a slave to the drug. And that's, that was a big step, so going, realizing that I'm going through withdrawal. Within six months, my use of Percocet, and I've already given you the background, just completely escalated and took off. And there was a day when I had no more Percocet, but I had a fentanyl patch at home. It had been there for a year. I did wear them occasionally because when I had exacerbations of the back pain. But this day was different when I was going through opioid withdrawal and it became desperate. And I wanted to simply feel better. And this is a very common thing for addiction in general is people will go to extreme lengths to feel better. And they will rob, they will steal from their family, they will burn bridges, they will rob banks, they will steal from pharmacies, sell their bodies. And doctors will abuse their right to, to prescribe opioids. I, I totally took advantage of my ability to write prescriptions. I'm going through Percocet withdrawal and I had the sentinel patch and this is where that recklessness in me with that, whatever that is, my personality, but I Googled on how to smoke it. I had heard people were smoking the sentinel patch. I didn't want to wear it because it wasn't strong enough. Uh, I was already deeply addicted. My tolerance to the opioids had grown. So wearing the patch didn't have that effect of medicating my pain and uh, my sorrows. So I Googled how to smoke it, and um, I was alone in the house, and I cut it up into little squares, and I had a puff, and it was incredibly strong, and, it, and I would have died right there and then. I would have overdosed had I not had the tolerance I had built up with the Percocet. Uh, it was an incredibly strong high, powerful high, and I loved it immediately. And so it was like the first time when I had the Percocet, or the Dilaudid, many years previous. It's very similar things. I'd just been introduced to something new, and... It just hardwired my brain at that point. I like this. I want more. The downside of this is now this drug is potent. This drug is, you know, 100 times more powerful than Percocet, if not more. And not only is it more potent, but you go into withdrawal even faster because it's such a rapid-acting drug, fentanyl. So it gets you higher, and it gets you higher faster, but you also come down faster. And so within 15 minutes, I was already craving it and taking more. It was that fast. The addiction just spiraled accelerated now. That spiral just sped up thousandfold. And so now the next day, I couldn't stop. It was six months of hell. It only took me six months to spiral to the point where I almost died. Something had to give. Either I was going to die because, not from an overdose, but just from, just from extreme use. I'd lost so much weight. And I'm hiding it and trying to keep it all together. I'm still able to work uh, I was not getting high at work. I would get around that. Uh, going, I would get around going through withdrawal by wearing the fentanyl patch. And I was dying. And my mother knew it. My friends knew it. And I wouldn't get help from myself. And then a couple of times I tried to quit. 
I come home to my parents' place and uh, stay on the couch for five days and just was in horrible, horrible shape. I tried to wean myself off. And I thought, you know, a week would be enough. I get time off work and try to wean myself off within a week. And that was not even close. In the end, it took me six months to get off and stuff. Six months, not a week. So eventually I gave myself up. The pharmacy figured it out. The police got involved. I got arrested. My work was notified, taken off the schedule. And I went to rehab for five, six weeks and um, went through absolute hell uh, when I was there. I was incredibly sick. They don't do this anymore, but I was, I was put on Suboxone and, and put on a rapid wean. Most people don't tolerate it well. Uh, they start using again. But I guess for doctors who are like me, who are very stubborn, I need to learn things the hard way. And I'm glad that they did it. But my gosh, I, I went to withdrawal not once, but three times when I was there. And it was the biggest nightmare, worst nightmare of my life by far. And uh, it was incredibly uh, weak at that point, but it took about 36 hours of the worst of the symptoms to, to, get o- to get over. And then it was another six months to get through the physical stuff. And then it took two years to get over the psychological effects. Couldn't make up my mind on things, uh, very difficult to concentration. Obviously, I wasn't working, but it just took me a very, very long time to get through it all. I did have a couple relapses. The police were investigating me. The last relapse was soon after rehab when I, I should not have been discharged, to be honest, I wasn't ready. I was still very sick, but I had a court date and I was released and I wanted to leave rehab. So I relapsed. That's when I uh, would call it a dry shower incident. So I relapsed on the fentanyl, smoking in a, in a shower stall in the basement. I smoked down there because the smell wouldn't trickle into the house, but I didn't uh, realize that I had overdone it. And my wife saved my life. She came downstairs because I disappeared. And to this day, I still think it was nighttime, but she tells me it was morning. And she came down to find me green face, barely breathing. And, and uh, that's one shade away from blue, which is cyanosis, which means cyanara. So she found me just on teetering on death's doorstep. And uh, I remember the look in her face when she when yelled my name. And I, I guess I opened my eyes up. And the look of fear in her eyes, I will never forget. I put her through hell. Daryl's life was saved that day. But what next? Would this moment lead him down the road to recovery? I will never forget the look on her face, but I can see what I'd done to her, what I'd done to myself. And uh, you think that person would be done then? Guess what? No, I kept going. I kept using. She took away the, the paraphernalia that uh, fell out, strewn around me in that shower stall, and I went right back to using again. And I, and I didn't care. I didn't care about anything at that point. The bottom, what finally got me, was being arrested. A few weeks later, the police were investigating me, and that last prescription for fentanyl uh, triggered a response by the police to say, we got we got to arrest this guy now. He's a danger to himself and the public. So they arrested me. Police came at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning and uh, raided my house. I was handcuffed and taken away. That day I was arrested, put in the penitentiary machine jail and stayed there for about 18 days. And here I am, you know, in an orange prison jumpsuit. And uh, three months previously, I was working as a successful physician in, a, in an emergency department. So that was a very much a rude awakening. But by this point, believe it or not, that was the beginning of my healing. Being arrested and taken away uh, from my wife and children, that was finally the bottom the rock bottom at that point. So I got better after that. I, uh, I, I healed when I was in jail for those 18 days. It was a very sobering, scary experience, but I did okay in the end. 
parents were there all the time visiting. Um, and when I finally made bail, um, I had a split from my wife. And so she lived in the house with the kids, and I moved down to my parents' place in Toronto. And um, after that, went to a couple more rehabs and finally got it right. In total, I did six months of rehab and finally got better um, and clear-headed and healed. The relapse, generally, there's a sequence of events that goes on of decisions. And I realized if I do good, I feel good about what's going on in my life, and good things tend to happen. If I do bad, if I relapse, nothing but sheer negativity is going to happen. And it took a couple of relapses to realize that, that, that if I just think about my decision-making before I become impulsive, then that's another feature of my personality is impulsivity, to recognize it and control it. And I've carried that with me to this day. I've made a series of good decisions now, and I've built up a massive amount of recovery of good, healthy recovery because I'm taking better care of myself. I've learned to voice, to, to not internalize, to externalize, share my issues with people. I went to hundreds and hundreds of, of 12-step meetings. Uh, I went to uh, aftercare groups. I went to um, an addictionist and a caduceus group, which is people in recovery who are healthcare professionals. So that's called caduceus. And built up a strong support network. And uh, I had to live the next two years, though, uncertainty about my future. I mean, the Crown attorney was talking about a 12-year sentence, 12 years, living like this every day, not knowing. And then having the back pain, of course, is still there, still going on. Major stressors, but I I learned to talk about it. I learned all these things about how I I became a master of coping with my stress without medicating myself. That's That is the difference of what happens as the new Daryl versus the old old Daryl. And uh, that's surprisingly helped in many, many ways. I learned that the same things that help me in recovery are the same things that leads to happiness. That's a big one right there as well. Things like being connected with other people. That's huge. Being honest. Nothing, uh, not internalizing, like I said, I keep using that word, but being able to express what's going on. So something came to life in me and my mother called it. You know, she's, she was impatient, wondering when, when it's going to happen, but it did happen. And then it grew and grew and grew. And I remember speaking to a guy in recovery saying, I'm, I'm finally back to the guy I was five years ago. And he goes, no, 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 you're better than who you were five years ago. Wow, that's true. And it's, I've grown stronger and stronger since. It just took one hell of a lesson to get there. So living my life like this, two years, not knowing what my future is going to bring. Uh, eventually, I did plead guilty. Just for the record, <clears throat> it was trafficking fentanyl, but not trafficking to, to make money kind of trafficking, not dealing. A lot of people, uh, and I thought this once too, that, that trafficking equates to dealing. No, trafficking equates sometimes to dealing, but the movement of drugs, giving of drugs. If you share a joint with somebody at a party, that's trafficking. By me writing prescriptions for fentanyl and uh, having somebody involved and they gave it back to me, forcing a pharmacist to give a bogus prescription to me, that's trafficking. So I pleaded guilty and... I was sentenced to two years, plus a day. So that put me into the federal system. I was scared, silly, of course, to be to sit there and have my future in the hands of a judge. But fortunately, I got a very favorable sentence. And it did come with a sense of total belief. At least now I know what's going on in my future. Because living like that with two years of uncertainty is, is definitely a horrible way to live. So I was cuffed and taken away. Not a good time uh, to see what I did to my family and friends in the courtroom and to see the tears, and but I was okay. So I went into the federal system, and I served uh, eight months in good behavior. I was at Joyceville, Joyceville Medium, which is assessment, now called assessment unit, for two months, and then six months of minimum security at Joyceville as well. 
and I did okay. It was a little difficult when I first got out in December of 2017 just to readjust to normal life. This day, uh, loud noises and any sort of violence uh, really bothers me. So it's kind of it's a couple scars left over, I guess. But um, that's the weird thing. I didn't really witness much violence when I was in jail, but or in prison. But uh, I cannot watch a single thing on television, anything that has to do with violence. But I did okay in the end. Uh, I did a lot of writing when I was in there. I became a math tutor. I was a librarian assistant. Uh, became physically active uh, and got healthier again. So here I am six months later, and I've never been stronger in my life. What I want to do now, what I am doing, is speaking out about the opioid crisis, speaking out about opioid addiction, substance abuse in general. And I'm willing to talk about my story in uh, any sort of public forum, public speaking, education seminars, students, police. It's important to me to tell, get out there and, and, and public speaking, any forum whatsoever, to explain this stuff to people. Like, why is it people will break into pharmacies and prostitutes? Well, I want to give the answers to try to humanize it, explain why people are doing this. And I now see the patterns, which I never would have seen before when I was a physician and passing judgment on, on, on addicts, giving them second-class treatment, which is endemic as well across emergency rooms in North America. That needs to change as well. There's no room for judgment in the workplace, especially in healthcare. No room for judgment. We need to start looking at people, uh, people who are identifying as uh, substance users, whether they're on chronic opioids or full-fledged addiction. We need to look at them as somebody who, who look past the manipulation to, to realize why are they trying to manipulate because this is a sick person. And I want to let the doctors and nurses understand and try to treat people with, with uh, compassion and, and to be humane as opposed to judgmental. Problematic opioid use is devastating Canadian lives. The numbers are tragic and staggering. These are the stories behind the numbers. This crisis has a face. It is the face of a friend, a coworker, a family member. Meeting those eyes and seeing our own reflection is the first step toward ending the stigma that often prevents people who use drugs from receiving help. To learn more about the opioid crisis, visit canada.ca slash opioids. This audio series is a production of Health Canada. The opinions expressed by individuals on this program are those of the individuals and not those of Health Canada. Health Canada has not validated the accuracy of any statements made by the individuals on this program. Reproduction of this material, in whole or in part, for non-commercial purposes is permitted under the standard terms of use for Government of Canada digital content.